Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 5, Episode 5, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. My name, again, is Rick. I'm author of a book released uh, last year called The God Who Fights For You, and before that, Spiritual Grit in its two companion devotions, and before that, The Jesus-Centered Life, the the sort of foundation stone of this, this podcast. And I'm the general editor of The Jesus-Centered Bible, which, uh, if you have not yet gotten your copy of The Jesus-Centered Bible, uh what are you waiting for? There's no other Bible like it. And I know you hear hype all the time. Our whole lives are immersed in hype. You've just come through the greatest hype fest in human history in the Super Bowl Sunday hype fest of advertising. But this isn't hype. There's actually no other Bible like this one. It highlights Jesus throughout in some very creative ways. And we've heard from so many people that it's changed the way they read the Bible. So... We'll have a link uh, to the Jesus Center Bible if you want to check out. We have it in a couple of different colors, or no, actually four different colors. And then there's a hardback version, and there's a Alien 3D version, which I just lied about. No, we don't have an Alien 3D version, but we have everything else. So check out the link to the Jesus Center Bible if you don't already have one. And I just, I've said before in the past podcast that I finished writing the Jesus Center Daily devotional, but... What is finished, really? <laughs> it's now in the editorial process, and I'm actually rewriting all of the devotions. I'm in mid-June now, so I'm tweaking them is a better way of saying it. So I'm making them better. So I'm going back through the entire year, and I'm through mid-June right now. So by the end of February, the back and forth of this will be done, and it'll start to go into production, and We'll talk more about it as the year goes on. So that comes in early October, Jesus Center Daily, released in early October. So, and by the way, here's my last by the way. If you're involved in ministry leadership and you want to learn a new way of engaging people that really reflects the kind of philosophy of this podcast, it's how do you engage people for transformation? If you're a ministry leader and you're interested in a three-day retreat that will help you do that better, it's called Reboot. And it's uh, February 19th through the 21st here at our beautiful headquarters at the in the foothills of the Rockies. Uh, come uh, and learn and grow with a bunch of other ministry leaders as we experiment our way forward into uh, creating more transformational environments for people. So you, uh, you can find a link for Reboot, the, the event Reboot, on our site as well, or you can go to group.com slash Reboot and check it out there. So we're today kicking off a new series I'm calling Foundations. And basically, we're going to explore some foundational truths that are connected to Jesus and work our way through and play our way through those foundation stones. Uh, we're just going to—I'm uh, uh, not even sure how, how long or far this is going to go. We're just going to explore things that are foundational to Him and to our life as a result of that. And what, what is His mission in our lives, and what are some of the foundation stones or milestones of that? So first up uh, today, we're going to explore— what I'm calling a big problem to solve. And to help me out today is our old friend, Steph. Steph, hello. can you say hello? Hi, everyone. Look how well she did that. She said hello. 
So, Steph, what are you up to these days? Maybe you could update people. Well, you know, it's winter. So I really am devoted to my plan of intense hibernation. Wow. Yep. I'm committed to it. I like to really try to do as little as possible. The art of doing nothing. I I really am. Yep. Does it mean that you're like literally unconscious when you're hibernating? Because isn't (laughs) that, how how far do we go with the metaphor? There's TV involved for sure. (laughs) Leisure. Comfy, slouchy socks. What, wait a minute. Uh, maybe what is, some knitting. What is your favorite form of TV hibernation inducing? Netflix streaming. You know what? What the people are doing. Netflix is like a whole, like, uh, like it's a it's a whole n- network, so to so to mm-hmm. speak. So when people say I'm just watching Netflix, that doesn't mean anything to me because you've got like five billion options when you're watching Netflix. Is it just that you pick out whatever the heck you want when you go on Netflix, or do you have go to things that you watch on Netflix that you can share with a I, we, with a Jesus audience. We, <laughs> we have go-to things that we enjoy. Um, I will stick to genres rather than commit to the names of shows, lest people... So, like a genre would be... I, I personally enjoy the sci-fi genre oh. to a degree. Some sci-fi is better than others. Does that include um, Stranger Things? It absolutely includes Stranger okay, Things. Then. then we're all for good. For sure. We're all good then. 80s yeah. nostalgia related to Stranger Things is also a big <laughs> hit. And Teenagers with Angst and also Supernatural Powers really yeah. entertains me. Yeah. Stranger Things also is rich fodder for thinking and talking about Jesus, I just have to say. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite things to do is watch things that aren't about Jesus and then talk about Jesus. So <laughs> so now you know what Steph's hibernating habits mm-hmm. are. We will not be linking those on this podcast. Nope. <laughs> so we're here in the beginning of the year, and the question is, are you feeling stressed out yet? Because probably you are. We start the new year with all this hope and vigor and energy and uh, this year is going to be different, and we, we kind of give ourselves an imaginary fresh slate, and then we get, we're this far into the mu- uh, into the year now, a little over a month into the year, and yes, we're feeling stressed <laughs> for a wide variety of years. Yeah, every year, every new year brings its own new set of problems, doesn't it? Um, I was looking up some stuff for the podcast today, and there's a new American Psychological Association study that was looking at what is stressing people out. In America today. So these are like the ogres under our bridge that are stressing us out the most. So here's an interesting list of things that are stressing us out. More than half of us are stressed about the 2020 presidential election. I can't imagine where the stress is coming from. It's a stressful time. Yeah, it is. There's a, there's a lot on the line. Um, an equal number, a little over half, say they're stressed about climate change. Um, uh, that That number gets bigger as you get to the younger generations. Younger generations are really stressed about climate change. They have their whole lives in front of them, and they're inheriting a problem (laughs) with their whole lives ahead of them. So seven out of 10 are stressed about healthcare right now, according to this study, and an equal number, seven out of 10, are stressed about mass shootings. So mass shootings uh, have an infinitesimal impact, actual impact on people, because they, they don't involve that many people at all. But they're having a massive impact on our stress, the stress of feeling like I could be involved in a mass shooting. Uh, Also stressing people out, a little lower numbers, but still significant, sexual harassment and immigration. Both of those just hovering just under 50% of people 
feel stressed about sexual harassment and immigration. So overall, Americans say that they're sort of at the midpoint of stress. They're a five on a scale of one to 10. But the younger you go, the more stress there is. So the most stressed out people in our culture are Gen Z, that is young people. They average a six on a one to 10 scale. So Steph, we're, here we are in a new year. What new problems are stressing you out, Steph? <laughs> Well, you know, I was thinking about this, um, and I had a chance to peek at some of these statistics prior to our conversation. And I think I feel that anxiety that you feel when you're kind of at midlife. Let's call it Groundhog Day stress. And what I mean by that is this sense that every day is kind of the same. You're just sort of on repeat over and over and over again, and you're kind of in that middle stretch of life where you aren't encountering a lot of significant milestones anymore. And then the ones that are ahead are kind of the aging milestones, which are less exciting than the aging milestones of youth. That's um, true. And you're kind of... Yeah, going into <laughs> assisted living is not as exciting as getting your driver's license. It's is not. That what you're saying? I yeah. am saying that, mm-hmm. yeah. And you're just asking some of those bigger questions that you thought you'd have answered by now, like what what is the purpose of my life and, and kind of what's the bigger meaning of what I'm doing? Wow, Part, so you have metaphysical I'm, problems. I, I'm having some existential questions, mm-hmm. you know, in, in winter, um, in the lull of the year, when um, every day feels a little bit similar to all the days ahead. Well, behind. if all you're doing is hibernating every day, <laughs> no wonder... <laughs> You know, you Do went, you think that the bears have existential anxiety no, in, in the winter for uh, the, the purpose of their life? Yeah, you know, you, if you look at a bear hibernating, <laughs> I understand the appeal. It's like, oh, oh, to do that for a stretch of life with, with, uh, where n- no one can wake you up no matter how hard they Well, and you know, the, the thing that about me right now is that circumstantially my life is in pretty good shape. So in terms of some of these big things that we tend to stress about, right, like medical issues or financial challenges, I feel really blessed to not be in a season where I'm dealing with so something those, if immediate. So those, if those things became problems for you, they would immediately take over your attention. Oh, I think so. Yeah. I mean, they have it just by their nature. They tend to be very demanding in what yeah. they, uh, their impact on your life. So, so even... I'm not really experiencing those. I feel very fortunate. But at the same time, um, there is still sort of an underlying sense of anxiety about life and the state of things in the world and, you know, my future, the future, that kind of thing. Well, very metaphysical problems, as I mentioned before. Let me lower the bar. (laughs) I I will say that I'm thinking about the problem that that, that just pops in my head is the other night in our group with we have a bunch of young adults every Tuesday night in our house. Uh, at the end, I was talking to one who had just come back from college night where they they learn everything they're supposed to do mm. to be able to get into college and pay for college. And she just looked like it's overwhelming. A tra- she looked like a train. Hitter. Oh, I'm sure. And she was just talking to me about how overwhelming it all feels. And basically, she and her parents had decided um, out of the sticker shock of thinking about how are they going to pay for all this, that she is going to go to community college for two years before she heads on to college because she and her parents can't conceive of how they're going to pull this off. And 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 I'm thinking about my own daughter who's 16. She's midway through her junior year. We're into that season now from now until a year and a half from now. We're going to be thinking about not just... I'm not that concerned about... It, none, no one in our family is concerned about getting into their prize school. I think that's overrated. But we are concerned about how will we pay for this? And... Uh, how's that going to happen? And will my daughter be saddled with debt? Will we be saddled with debt for a long time? And that is a problem to solve. 
and you start thinking strategically about well, what are our options here? And you know, so we've said to our girls, your uh, the end of your junior year through your senior year, your job is to apply for scholarships. Treat it like a job you go to every day. You, we're going to be researching, and you're going to be applying to scholarships, and that was a tremendous strategy for Lucy, our older daughter. Um, she made way more by making her job applying for scholarships than she ever could have made at another job. Um, and so our younger daughter is about to enter into that, and she's stressed about it. She's like, yeah. she has to live up to what her older sister did for, for number one. But she, so we have a problem to solve about um, how is college going to get paid for. And we are starting the problem solving process with our younger daughter to try to figure that out. Um, I was looking at something from the Mayo Clinic. Uh, the, here's their definition of problem solving related to th- stressors in our life. Problem solving is the process of identifying stressors and creating strategies to manage them. So that's what we both just did. Sure. We, we identified a, a stressor, and then we start to think strategically about how to manage that. The Mayo Clinic offers these, what they call five simple steps for dealing with problems in your life. We're not going to delve deeply into these. I just want to list what they say are the steps for dealing with a problem. You identify the problem first. Then second, you brainstorm ideas. Third, you select a solution from those ideas. Four, you put your plan into action. And five, you reflect on your experience. It's a pretty normal, expected, conventional uh, way of thinking about how you address a problem. You start brainstorming solutions. You select one you like. You try it. You see how it works, and you go from there. And there's a feedback loop. But um, at the end of that report, the Mayo Clinic researchers say this. I thought this was interesting. They said, problem-solving is a natural human talent. We're born solving problems from our first attempts as babies to grasp and crawl. We may not count the thousands of choices we make each day as problem-solving, but that's what they are. So when you focus on solving more complicated problems, have the confidence of knowing that you've got plenty of experience behind you. What they won't didn't say, and they wouldn't say, of course, is that we are created in the image of God. And the fact that problem-solving is in our nature is really reflective of Him. God is at his core a problem solver, and he's got a really big problem to solve that overshadows everything else, which is called the redemption of mankind. <laughs> so he is a problem solver, but the big problem he's trying to solve is really a big problem. So and some, by the way, some of the problems that we face in life are sort of self-inflicted. We bring them on ourselves. And some just sort of land in our lap. We're going to talk more about that, those two kinds of sources of our problems, in just a little bit. But let's explore the role problem-solving plays in the heart of Jesus, how problem-solving goes right to his core, and what, what is he doing about the big problem that he faces, and is it his problem or is it our problem? That makes a difference as far as um, our reality about how we how we find freedom from that problem, and what is he doing right now to live out that problem-solving passion that he has in my life and in your life. So we're just going to dive in a little bit to that the big problem. Let's start by uh, uh, thinking about, um, have you ever considered what problems Jesus had in, your, in his life? So Steph, for you, when you think about, well, what problems does Jesus have? Because he certainly had a lot of them. He's not the stress-free, problem-free, carefree guy that sometimes we describe. So what problems pop into your head when you think about the problems Jesus had to face? 
Well, he obviously had logistical challenges. Like you know? what? Like like, he, like his as his iPad didn't work well, properly. You know, like he he had to organize things. He had oh. to um, coordinate, get me a room so that I can meet with my disciples, which we now celebrate as um, you know the final Passover mm-hmm. and. Um, secure a donkey for me to ride in yeah, into town. That's a problem. Um, if you're donkeyless, <laughs> he yeah. had that problem of being hungry for forty days and forty nights. That would have been a oh, challenge. Oh, that's a problem. That's, yeah, yeah, that's almost on the edge of death. I asked somebody once, "How long can you go fasting from water and food, uh, from food alone?" And that they, this was a medical doctor. He said that forty to forty-five days is about mm-hmm. the limit for a human being. So he yeah. was on the edge. Yeah. He obviously he seemed very exasperated at times at not being understood. So I, I imagine that was a problem that he encountered a lot. That was kind of frustrating for yeah, him. Yeah, he had thick friends and thick enemies. Mm-hmm. Actually, neither one of them got him. Uh, um, uh, very often, uh, the Pharisees were a problem for him. I mean, that comes up a lot. They were plotting to kill him, right. so that's a problem. It's a challenge. <laughs> and they were always trying to trap him. When they weren't trying to kill him, they were trying to trap him. So that's a. If you can imagine that you have somebody in your life, a constant source of, of trying to manipulate you into trapping you, so that you can be um, sidelined or killed, that's <laughs> stress. Um, he had demanding crowds, uh, people that wanted mm-hmm. a lot from him. Um, mm-hmm. There was a, a stretch of time where after John the Baptist, uh, after he got the news that John the Baptist had been executed, he wanted to go off and be alone, but the people followed him, and so instead of going off and being alone, he he uh, performed miracles and healed healed them, and he he stretched out stretched it out longer because the people needed him, and then he went off and we found some alone time. So that's a problem when you have everybody clamoring and they want you every moment of the day. Um, and that kind of maybe ties into the kind of crazy expectations people had of him sometimes. Um, and he really only had a short time to do all this logistical stuff you're talking about. Mm-hmm. He only had a short time to establish all this stuff with his disciples. So that's kind of a problem. The clock is ticking. So, But I mentioned, though, that the really big problem that Jesus had to face goes all the way back to the beginning of creation. So I think these problems that we're listing that Jesus had, they're like branches on a tree. The trunk of that tree uh, is rooted in Genesis. So, so every year at Christmas time, on actually on Christmas Eve, um, the uh, uh, the NPR uh, broadcasts a live uh, version of something called the the Festival of Nine Lessons and Carols. It's from King's College at Cambridge in England. They do this every year on Christmas Eve. And so on Christmas Eve morning, whatever I'm doing, wrapping presents or uh, making food for Christmas or whatever, I have this on in the background. I love listening to it. It's about an hour, an hour and a half long, and um, it's traditional. It's simply walking through nine little um, spots in the story of God leading up to the Incarnation. So they just kind of land in nine different spots in Scripture that are tied together leading up to the Incarnation, and so they read a portion of Scripture, and then they also have a choral uh, response to that portion of Scripture. So I always love it. And this year, when the first lesson came up, um, I I was kind of transfixed by it. It comes from Genesis, and it highlights the big problem that Jesus has to deal with. Um, And so I uh, I thought I'd just read you the big problem from Genesis 3. Now, this 
comes from the uh, Festival of Nine Lessons and Carols. This is the one that they read that kicks off the path to the Incarnation. I thought it was fascinating to backtrack. And now, I want you to think about this as I'm reading this, um, in terms of the problem the Trinity has to solve as a result of what happens here. So this is from Genesis 3, starting in verse 8, going to verse 19. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? And again, just for reference, that tree is called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The man replied, well, it was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit and I ate it. Then the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? And the serpent deceived me, she replied, that's why I ate it. Now, that's the problem that resulted from the disobedience of Adam and Eve. That, that's the, the issue. Now God's going to reveal to them the consequences of that problem. So then the Lord God said to the serpent, "'Because you've done this, you're cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live, and I will cause hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring.' He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. Then he turned to the woman, and he said, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy, and in pain you will give birth, and you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. And to the man he said, Since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains." By the sweat of your brow, you will have you will have will you have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made, for you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. So there we have what I'm calling the big problem, and uh, I, uh, let's talk about a few questions relative to this, Steph. So, so how would you condense the big problem that resulted from these events? How would you describe the problem that results from this? Well, I think we call it sin. Is that the is, is that the problem or is that the instigator of the problem? Hmm. This is a good discussion because sure. that's the first thing we think about is I sin mean, is the, the problem. The, the temptation was what was presented to Eve, and she felt like she was missing out that God was withholding from her, and so she decided to take matters into her own hands or follow the advice of the serpent. So. And, and we know, by the way, it's important to point out this, that Adam was standing there silent while this was happening. Right. We sometimes forget this, and we heap, um, you know, kind of cloaked shame upon Eve, and by extension, all females for this. But Adam was standing there silent, not saying a word. So that's telling that that they were both there. Adam's Adam's immediate blaming of Eve is is sort of, I would, I would call that um, endemic to one of man's great weaknesses, is their passivity and their willingness to blame others instead of accept responsibility for things. So Adam does that right from the beginning. That's one of the impacts of... But you're talking about what set off mm-hmm. the circumstances surrounding what then happened right. in their betrayal, but what problem results from that then? Separation. Oh, yeah. Death. Death. Yeah, that, and those two are linked together. 
really, aren't they? Because our and you, when you say separation, you mean separation from God mm-hmm. in an intimate relationship yeah. then leads to death. Because their first reaction was to hide from him. So prior to that, there was no obstacle in their relationship. They they were in each other's company without barrier, and that that came that changed. Yeah, and the uh, it's good to remember what the lie was, which is central to the serpent's lie to Adam and Eve was you can be like gods. He knows you can. Mm-hmm. If you just eat from this tree, you'll have the knowledge of good and evil, and then you'll be like him. And he doesn't want you to mm-hmm. be like him. He wants all the power. He's he's a power hungry, small minded. God. He challenged his character. Yeah. And they and his motivation. And they didn't, you know. And they, they, they didn't know him well enough or didn't trust him enough to believe that he was different than that. Or it sounded plausible. Yeah. Like, oh, maybe that's why. He God never explains why he doesn't want them to eat from that tree. He does not say, Oh, and here's why. So he leaves a little gap there that Satan leverages. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, here's why he doesn't want you to eat it. I'll answer that mystery for you. So they, they bite of the apple, and they're actually biting on the lie when, when uh, that happens. So when they do that, the problem that results is separation from not just relationship, but intimate relationship. That's gone now. And, and also what's gone is wholeness. These are two broken people now. Mm. And so brokenness becomes our norm from this point forward. We don't really even know what wholeness feels like because that was gone a long time ago. From Adam and Eve now to us, we are broken people. We enter the world broken, and the brokenness only advances for some people. So so he's got the problem of the separation of the relationship, and by extension, so what, what, what problem does that create? Let's go one step further. The fact that we are separated in relationship and we're broken now, what problem does that create, and whose problem is it? Oh, that was deep. Uh, yeah, that, that is deep. Yeah, yeah, you've been in metaphysical land in your <laughs> hibernation time, so you should be well primed for this. Uh, is, is, can you? Can I state the question again? Yeah. Can I get the question again? Yes. Yes. It's like it, it, it's like we're in the middle like of the impeachment game. trial. <laughs> yes. Uh, can, can I hear can it the, again? Can please? the lawyer for the defense <laughs> please repeat the question? So the pr- the question is, uh, what is this, the what is the next problem that is created after separation? after separation of our relationship and our brokenness? What other problem does that then create? I'm not, I don't have an idea in my head of what I'm looking for. I'm just well, saying. I mean, there were a, there was a problem for God, which was well, now that they have knowledge, if they if they eat of the tree of eternal life, they're going to live forever in this state um, of of separation, and so He solved that problem by blocking off the tree and casting them out of the garden. Um, and then he cursed them. And that obviously created a whole, uh, is the root of a whole bunch of problems. Yes. And so the, the, in the cursing that we read about, we still, ex- we still experience those problems even mm. today. I mean, they're hints of the problems we experience today. So for the men, it's, it's, uh, um, it, you're going you're gonna to have a lot harder time working. <laughs> it's going to be a lot more frustrating, a lot less fruitful. Uh, your work is going to feel fruitless very often. You're going to have to scratch it out. The, uh, in our uh, young people's group, um, what was interesting is when we were looking at this, the girls said, hey, the girls got a lot worse consequence out of this whole deal. Um, these are all girls that have uh, that obviously are teenagers, 
So the thought of giving birth is just absolutely <laughs> frightening to most of them. So the thought of the pain of childbirth, um, they're like, guys got off easy. Look what we have to endure. Um, but uh, I think it's it's also metaphoric more than just the actual the the actual pain of giving birth. There's also pain associated with being a mother and um, the insecurity of that. Um, there's there's so many other things that go with it. So we start to see some of the consequences coming out of the curse. So this big problem, this separation, would you say, Steph, um, that it's this problem is mostly God's problem or mostly our problem? Because part of the process of solving a problem is who owns the problem. Sure. So who owns this problem? I mean, I think prior to Jesus, we kind of thought it was our problem to solve. <clears throat> you know, I mean, that the law was there, and there were a lot of rules to follow and a certain level of holiness to maintain to try to mend that breach. Um, but when Jesus came, I think he introduced this radical idea that God was taking responsibility for making this right, and that that was what was his job. He He was here to make things right, and I think that there's hardly a more liberating thought, really, that all of this bad stuff that happened, God is taking full responsibility to reconcile that. Yeah, and so that's an interesting thought, too, that that prior to Jesus, that mankind felt like the weight of solving the problem was on them. They were given a, a kind of an elaborate system of the law and animal sacrifice and repentance rituals that were supposed to keep them in some kind of good standing with God. But then um, uh, when when I think about what you just said about before Jesus, that's what it was like. Jesus said at one point, look, I've come to change the game here. You are no longer slaves. I call you friends now. So the, the, the description of the problem is ours, we got to fix it by offering all these animal sacrifices and following the law down to the littlest detail, oh, what a crushing burden that is, mm-hmm. um, uh, that's, that's the kind of weight a slave carries. It's all on me. Jesus is saying, now I call you friends, you're no longer slaves, we're intimates now, um, and the, the problem, I guess you're suggesting, uh, is now the problem shifts to Jesus' shoulders. He's going to carry the weight of the problem. Um, so you, you could probably say that throughout history, uh, who owns the problem? It's mutual, that we have a problem, but because God loves us, He has a problem. So I guess you could say it wouldn't be a problem for God if He didn't care about us. True. Right? Yeah. I mean, I think that's true. I think that's part of the reason why it's called the good news. Hmm. Yeah, because if He didn't care about relationship with us, He'd be like, oh, Good, good. I, I was tired of you anyway. So you broke relationship? Well, you're going to get—this is what you're going to get because of that. But he takes on this problem. He's not content to be disconnected in relationship from us. In fact, a restoration of relationship is his mission. The whole of the gospel comes down to that, the restoration of relationship, what has to happen. And um, there's definitely things we cannot do to solve our problem. We are dependent. We try to solve it all ourselves. We would like to think that we're in charge, that we can solve this problem. But uh, we have a terrible track record of solving our own problem. That's, by the way, Little Rabbit Trail, one of the songs that's popular that I, that I despise the most 
Um, and it's ironic because I love the Beatles, but I hate John Lennon's song, Imagine, because that song tries to imagine a world where um, everyone's good to each other. Everyone's a good person, and they're living out their goodness toward each other. And the reason I hate it is because it's such an immature way of looking at human beings. We, we cannot pull ourselves up by our bootstraps to be good enough to treat each other the way he describes in that song. We need help. Um, and if you don't think you need help, I think you're blind. You're, you're just not uh, being honest about the human condition. So we need help with our problem. Um, and so the next question is, well, what has to happen to solve the problem? What has to, if the problem is a break in relationship and broken mankind, we can give the churchy answer, oh, well, the Jesus and the cross has to happen. But on a broader scale, if we just think about a broken relationship, what has to happen to restore a broken relationship? What pops into your head, Steph? Forgiveness. Hmm. I mean, I think often that's a real key. Uh, restoration of trust, which takes time. Um, time spent together, honesty. I mean, all these components of intimacy have to be practiced. Now, I love that forgiveness leading into a restoration of trust. And the restoration of trust, so that is a humongous phrase. <laughs> when you have broken trust, how do you restore it? And if and how can the restoration ever be complete once you have experienced viscerally betrayal? How does that ever happen? How do you recover it? That's a miracle to recover trust. But that's the situation here, the the problem they're facing. What do you think... Here, here's the last question. What do you think are challenges that will hamper that solution? The restoration of trust, forgiveness, what are some of the challenges that will hamper that from happening? Well, the serpent's still alive, for one thing. <laughs> and what significance is that? Well, he, I mean, Jesus described him, his motives to steal, kill, and destroy. I mean, he, he seeks to put enmity between God and man. That is his mission, and he is ardent about it. And I think that he's a, he's a true obstacle to this process happening. It's not what he wants. Yeah, and so we know that Jesus' Jesus's sacrifice on the cross um, destroys any authority Satan had ever been given— so he has no more authority anymore. He, Jesus took it all back. However, he is a deceiver. He, Jesus calls him the father of lies, and he intends to destroy God's beloved through deception. Um, uh, Jesus goes to great lengths to say he has always been a liar. Deception is at the core of his heart, and he's going to use deception to, to take as many down with him as he can. He's simply going to to try to hurt God's heart by destroying as many of his beloved as he can. So that's a big blockage mm -hmm. in trying to restore this relationship. We have a deceiver active who's getting in the way. And I think another um, thing that's a challenge hampering the solution to this problem is that God has decided that what he wants is a love relationship. So to have a true love relationship, he cannot force us into that relationship. He can't force us to come back to him. He can't force us to love him. He can't force us to obey him. So he is at the mercy of invitation here. He, he has to sort of draw us back into relationship with him, with us, with him, without forcing us, because the moment he forces us, it's no longer love. So he's created... You could say he's created a problem for himself. It's a very inefficient system. Right. He, he wants intimacy. So he's not willing to force us. 
He's only willing to draw us, which is, there's a pretty big price tag on that decision. So so the, the solution to the big problem, I was thinking about Paul, who's a very smart man, of course. He tells us he's discovered a solution to this big problem. And then uh, first what he does is he explains the true purpose of the law, the, the commandments and standards for righteousness in the Old Testament, and then he hints at the big solution to the big problem. So I'm going to read to you from Romans chapter 3, where Paul describes in a kind of a succinct way what the solution to the big problem is. Here's, here's what he says, starting in verse 19, uh, chapter 3. Obviously, the law applies to those to whom it was given, and that's us, <laughs> for its purpose is to keep people from having excuses. So we have to stop right there. The purpose, the whole purpose mm-hmm. of the law is to keep everyone from having an excuse. So the law has to be great and grand and impossible mm-hmm. in order to meet that standard that nobody can keep up with the law, is what he's saying. And that's its purpose. You, you can't have an excuse any longer. And the purpose of the law is to show that the entire world is guilty before God. Well, mission accomplished. Indeed. <laughs> uh, I don't know anyone who, who's kept the law even for one day, um, all of the law. So, so Paul goes on, for no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. That's right. The, so the law simply shows us how sinful we are. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him. Here's the solution Paul is trying to describe, without keeping the requirements of the law. So we think the only way to be made right is to keep all the requirements of the law, and he's saying, no, that's not its purpose. Its purpose is to show you, show you that you can't. Jesus has another solution to the problem that doesn't involve that. And, and he says, so um, God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard, yet God in His grace freely makes us right in His sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when He freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in the past. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in the present time. God did did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Can we boast then that we have done anything to be accepted by God? No because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law. It's based on faith. So we are made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. And when he says faith here, he means, he's he's implying because of the case he's making, faith in Jesus, not just faith as a commodity, that if we just have faith in something, this problem will be solved. No, it's faith in Jesus, which goes back to what you said before, Steph, how do you solve this problem? Well, there has to be forgiveness, and then trust has to be reestablished. And I would say that faith is our, is our practical expression of trust. When you, when you have faith in Jesus, uh, you can't have faith in Jesus without trusting him. Faith is sort of the fruit of trusting Jesus. So, so there we have Paul's solution to the, to the problem. He's kind of outlined the true purpose of the law, and the true solution to the problem is 
attaching ourselves to Jesus, who forgives us and gives us access to righteousness, therefore restoration of the relationship. So I thought just to kind of close off today, uh, it would be interesting for us to focus on just a portion of John chapter 6. Jesus has a big problem to solve, um, the restoration of relationship. The people who created the problem, us, we can't solve it on our own. So what does Jesus do without forcing us to into a relationship that solves the problem? So in John chapter 6 is when... Um, it's a tipping point in Scripture. It's I've said before on the podcast, it's my favorite chapter in all of the Bible, because this is the chapter when um, Jesus has just uh, finished uh, performing another one of his uh, fish and loaves miracles, and the next day the people follow him to the next hillside he's teaching on, because they want him to do that again. They want him to do that big feed-us-all thing. And so they start pressing in on him, and they start trying to trick him into performing this uh, this miracle again. They try they try to leverage him into doing it. And that seems to set something off in Jesus. And he he gets frustrated with them and he basically says, "You're just asking me to feed you again when standing right before you is the one that you need to eat and drink on." And so he says, kind of in a blunt way, "If you want any part of me, you're going to have to eat my body and drink my blood." In John chapter 6. And the people go, "What? What what?" What, what are you talking about? We were talking about the, the fish and the bread you did the other day. What are you talking about now? Can you explain that? And eight or nine times in a row, Jesus does not explain himself. <laughs> he just repeats over and over again, I said, if you want any part of me, you're going to have to eat my body and drink my blood. This is awkward. <laughs> oh, it's, it's just such my favorite Jesus moment, because nobody, can I say this? Nobody has the cojones of Jesus. Because he is, he is risking everything here by not explaining himself. And by the end of this stretch, this entire crowd leaves. They leave in a big cloud of dust, and all that's left are his closest friends. And I've always said, they, they're, because they're human beings, they must be thinking, can we leave too? <laughs> or would that be too embarrassing? <laughs> Will they notice? If, yeah, we just... if, we, if I leave too, if I just slip away because I think this guy's insane. He just told us to cannibalize himself. So they must be thinking that's not kosher. It's not. Oh, yeah, thank you. It's that's a, against the. That's, not that's fo- against the law. Yeah. Of what is in is not appropriate it's, to eat. It's not following the Jewish boundaries for no. an acceptable meal. Mm-mm. Yeah. So there, they must be thinking, what have we gotten ourselves into? Like. I thought we were building something here. Look at all these people. All we have to do is keep doing what we're doing. We're going to have a movement on our hands here. And then he just purposefully, it looks like, drives everyone away by saying this crazy thing over and over again. What the heck is he talking about? And so Jesus looks at his disciples, and he says, uh, uh, he asks them just the most heart-wrenching question. He says, are you going to leave too? And this is when Peter steps up and says what a disciple says. A disciple is one who is ruined by and ruined for Jesus. And Peter says, well, where else would we go? (laughs) Only you have words of life and truth, Jesus. What he's saying is, I'm done. I I don't know what else to do. I I don't get what you just did, but you've already ruined me for you, and so I'm going to be with you. And I don't understand what eat and drink you means, but I'm doing it right now, actually. (laughs) That's the irony of it. Peter doesn't understand what Jesus meant. But by his response to Jesus, he's actually doing what Jesus invited people to do, which is to eat and drink of him so deeply to take him from outside yourself 
inside yourself, so intimate that it becomes a part of you, that Jesus becomes your identity because you have consumed him. So, you know, um, when you eat something, there's this whole process of how something that we take from outside our body, inside our body, becomes part of us. We take it in, we put it in our mouth, we chew on it to break it down, it goes down our esophagus, is that right? Into yes. Our, yes, into <laughs> into our stomach where the acids work on it to break it down even further, and stuff that's not useful goes to the waste, and the stuff that is useful gets eventually transferred into our bloodstream, and it literally becomes a part of our our biology at that point. And so Jesus is saying, "Is that's the kind of intimacy I want, where you chew on me, and you consume me, and eventually I become part of you. You be I become part of your—he he says, I and you, you and me, um, later on in John. That's what he's looking for. So if we think about what's happening here, Steph, when he—this uh, whole progression. Um, so what would we say is his—from Jesus' perspective, what is, what is he saying is the solution to the problem in this scene? How would you characterize Jesus' answer to the big problem and how he's dealing with that with his disciples in this moment? How would you characterize that? I mean, I think he, he's characterizing it as himself. I, I am the solution to the problem. In what, in what sense is he the solution to the problem? Uh, I mean, is, he, uh, is he saying, um, I'll fix all this for you, or in what sense is he saying, I'm the solution he, to the problem? The, the kind of a, abiding sense, you know, the I, I am in the Father, the Father is in the me, you are, win, you are win, in us, that kind of thing. If, if I was, if I was um, you know, more Eastern, I would talk about energy, because it's kind of that way, mm, you mm. know, that I— we share that let's merge our energies, you know? I mean, that's, that's not what he's saying in those words, but in a way that's kind of what he's saying. But if you take my description of consumption mm -hmm. before, that really is a, uh, I mean, it's remarkable. If you uh, slow down, pay attention to Jesus' metaphors, he was using, he was speaking metaphorically to people, but they took him concretely, like, oh, he wants us to actually eat his flesh. No, Jesus was speaking metaphorically, he did not want them to eat his flesh at that moment, but he used the metaphor to describe what he wanted in reality. So if you take the metaphor and drill down, it is to chew on him, to break him down into pieces small enough that they can be absorbed into our very being so that you can't tell the difference between the food and me, and we can't tell the difference between Jesus and me. Jesus has become part of me and so deeply embedded that I can't separate him out from me. And that's really what Peter is saying in his response. I can't separate me out from you anymore. You are deep in me. Um, I'm going to go down. Um, I, I can't really help it. I'm going to go down in relationship with you no matter what. And then he betrays Jesus, of course, the worst thing he possibly could have done. But of course, the end story of Peter is um, crucifixion upside down. And it's an extraordinary act of symbolism to be crucified upside down because he says, I, don't, I can't bear to be executed in the same way my beloved was executed, so do it upside down. It's his last act of love to, to Jesus. So Peter dies living out his words in this scene that, uh, yeah, I don't get everything, and not everything's turned out the way I wanted it to, 
but I am never leaving you, Jesus. And it's because he has he has gone through the process that Jesus just described, eat me and drink me. So last question here is then, if that's the case, then what's our role and responsibility? And if you think even personally for you, Steph, how how this this has happened for you, how, how you have gotten to a place where you identify with Jesus so much that it's impossible for you to think of yourself outside of him. How does that actually happen? What What's our role and responsibility? Because we've already said he's not going to force it or choose his way or overcome our, our freedom to make that happen, so we have to have a role in this. So what would you say is our role? Uh, it reminds me of the role that I have in my marriage. I hmm. mean, it it's a role of being in proximity, living your life in the midst of somebody else, um, them influencing you, you being influenced. I mean, I think it, to me, that's what it looks like, Com- having conversation, sharing the the things that you don't say out loud to other people, um, not holding back. And when you encounter those instances when you know that you are holding back, you let them go. Um, And you have to, for me, trust gets um, eroded a lot. And so there's always a challenge to remain open in the midst of Mm. confusion and misunderstanding. Um, I, you know, I mean, we, we talk about Peter in this circumstance. He was very passionate about this cause. He had a lot of zeal and it must've been heartbreaking for him to see the things that happened to Jesus as they transpired toward the end of his life. Hmm. Yeah. And I think that that, you know, Jesus restored him, which is what he does when trust is broken. Um, and you have to sort of keep yourself open to that happening. Yeah, and that's that's maybe our greatest act of courage, to trust in the face of of evidence that undermines our trust, but to, to per- persevere in our trust. Well, if you think back to the very beginning, the... The serpent's goal was to poke holes in the character of God. Is he really? Is he really kind? This look at this thing that you're going through. Look at this stressful thing that's happening to you right now. Is God really? Does he really love you? Does he really care about you? Is he paying any attention to you at all? Um, how about that thing you prayed for that you didn't get? He didn't give it. He could have given it to you, but he didn't give it to you. Yeah. You know, what I mean, it, it, that's what he does, and that erodes our trust in God and who He says He is. And Jesus is one of His main jobs is to repair that. But you have to let Him. Yeah, and and uh, embedded in what you just said too, I'm just thinking about the 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 belief that Satan has is that the only reason we love and trust God is because He comes through for us. He does what we want, so that's really literally what uh, Satan brings to G- to God in the in the book of Job. He says, "Well, of course, Job loves you and has is is a righteous man because you, look at all you've done for him. You take any of that stuff away, and he'll he will he will betray you and and." Uh, denounce you in, in, a, in an eyelash. Just watch. So God gives him permission, and, and Job assaults—I mean, uh, Satan assaults Job. The, the, the beauty of that story to me is Job utterly bereft with so much lost in his life, saying uh, kind of his own proclamation. I, I picture him saying it with his fist raised, "'Though you slay me, I will still love you.'" This is the thing that destroys the lie of Satan. Satan's whole premise is built on a transaction. God gives to you, that's why you like him. But what happens when that stops? Do you still love him, and what do you love him for at that point? And that, that's true in marriage, too. 
when we feel like we're in that place in marriage, what do we keep loving for? Well, it's because we have committed to the other's heart. We, the, the, our commitment to the heart and our taste of the other's heart supersedes the, the moment, and that's what brings, that's what makes marriage sacred in the end. It's a reflection of our commitment to the other's heart in spite of what's just happened, and that destroys the lie of Satan in the end. I, mean, I was thinking, just to close off here, that um, the, after my wife and I got married, I remember her saying, to a, I overheard her saying to a friend that the thing she loved the most about marriage is that I didn't have to go home at night to my own home anymore. Now, uh, so we got to be around each other all the time. Mm-hmm. And when we were dating, we weren't around each other all the time. There was always an end to it. But marriage represented um, being with each other all the time now. And I think that that's a good metaphor for what Jesus is describing here, too, the privilege of being with him all the time. And that means with him in every compartment of our life, so that we ingest him. We, he, he becomes inseparable from, our, from the normalcy of our life. And maybe the, the role and responsibility we have is simply to respond to that invitation. We just say yes to that. And we say yes today and yes tomorrow and yes the next day. Yes, Jesus, I want you um, intimate in my life. I, I respond to your invitation with my yes. So Jesus is an incredible problem solver. But, you know, I've already mentioned everything in the kingdom of God works by invitation. So he can't solve our problem without our help. He has to have us participate with him. And in fact, I don't think he wants to solve our problems unilaterally. He always is determined to move through relationship. He wants us to work together on the problem. He's not going to lay down an edict. So how can we cooperate with him? Um, You've already mentioned it, Steph. I, I think this is the key word. Trust is the way we open our door to Jesus. It's that simple. Trust uh, but it has to be a trust. I was talking to my wife about this the other night. Um, we were talking about a, a, a problem we were dealing with, and she was trying to uh, brainstorm solutions, and she was. we kind of had a hand-wringing moment over this problem. And I said, you know, Bev, I feel like Jesus is simply calling us to trust him with this. And, and it, of course, it's costly right now for us to do that to trust him in the unknown, to trust him when something's really on the line. Trust isn't really trust unless it costs us something. If there's no price tag to it, it isn't really trust. This gets back to Satan's lie. Um, When Job said, I love you, God, no matter what, there was a price tag attached to that. When Peter said, I love you, Jesus, no matter what, there was a price tag attached to it. That is trust. It's, It's when it costs us something. So uh, another way of saying that is, w- what makes it dangerous for you to trust Jesus right now in your life? What would be a dangerous thing to trust Jesus for in your life right now? Or maybe another way of saying it is, what would make you feel vulnerable or aware of the cost or frightened to lose control over? All of those ways are ways of thinking about the cost or the price tag of trust. Whatever that is, whatever that thing is, that's rich soil for trust. That's the place where Jesus is inviting you to trust when you, when you don't have the guarantee of return, when you're, ju- you're just trusting because you know his heart. And, and the, the transactional part of that 
is not as important to you. You're determined to trust because you love his heart. That's the rich soil for trust. And that trust then opens our door to Jesus to come in and solve a problem maybe the way we didn't think he was going to. <laughs> he typically does that. When we trust him and open our door, he solves a problem in a way we didn't expect. So um, any any last thing you want to say about tr- tr- trust? <clears throat> Can't talk now. Any last thing you want to say about trust, Steph, that I didn't mention that needs to be pointed out? I think just that our job is to be open, and I, I think when you yield to the Holy Spirit, He can close the gap. So don't put pressure on yourself to feel like you have to trust perfectly. Um, let the Holy Spirit do His job and cover the shortfall that you'll have, because it's natural to have a shortfall, and that's okay. Yeah, I love that. I'm just thinking that of the of the guy who wanted his son healed, and and he said... If you can heal my son, Jesus, and Jesus stops him and says, what do you mean, if? You don't believe? And the man just in such a human way says, I believe, but help my unbelief. Mm -hmm. That is our life right there. I trust, but I don't trust. I trust, but I don't trust. Help my lack of trust. That, That is our act of faith and our fist in the air. Well, gang, thanks for listening today. This is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus.com, Season 5, Episode 5. That's... uh, that you can go to our uh, site and look for that episode and look for all the links of the things that we talked about today um, and uh, access those. Don't forget about the Reboot event in February. That's uh, group.com slash reboot if you're interested in that. And uh, we'll uh, continue this series on foundational truths about Jesus uh, next week. So you can uh, get our podcast from iTunes or Google Play or wherever you get your your uh, uh, wherever you get your podcast. And please do tell your friends about this podcast. If it's helpful for you, it probably would be helpful for them. And don't forget, if you want to be part of a community of people who um, listen to this podcast and are in community with each other, you can head on over to the Pigs page. There'll be a link to go to our private Facebook page called The Pigs. You just uh, go on there, and if you want to be part of it, you request to be invited into the group, and there you have it. So um, head on over to PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com, and we'll talk again next time.